do you roll, Jens? Cool. Who am I speaking with? All right, so my name is Sam. I I, I always forget to change like the band name from there. Yeah. Uh, and 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 you know we we did a hip hop episode before, and, and I guess Brian still has his Lang Kingpin on there. So my my street name. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sam. My name's Brian. Yeah. Hey, Brian. Brian and Sam. Yeah. Just- thanks for joining us on this. Uh- holiday weekend sunday happy Appreciate to do it. it guys sorry i had to keep pushing it pushing it you know no. how things get no listen I, at the at the end of the day um listen it, it just comes down to listen welcome to red river podcast by the way tyler meesom documentarian um i it all stemmed from watching i want to rock on paramount plus and uh you know we remember man that era I was like 10 in 1988, so it was like pretty impressionable on me, the MTV generation also, which we'll talk about that film that, that, that you made as well. So like that, that held a good part of my ear, but I, I had a foot in the hair bands. And then later on, when I was 13, I had a foot with Nirvana when that explosion happened. Right. So I'm watching this thing on Paramount Plus and I, I we've seen a hundred of these things. We've seen a hundred. Like I know these these bands and all this other stuff, but like what you managed to do with these three episodes were capture stories that I never even heard or knew. And then you really, really like humanized them to the point where like by the end, I felt like clapping for everyone involved because I'm like, oh, my God, you guys like flipped and did your thing beyond, you know, what you were supposed to do. And I just I was like, who the fuck directed this? Right. And then I just saw you and I just saw you on Instagram. I'm like, you know what? May he never respond. May he never give a shit. But let me just tell this guy what a great job. You know, I'm watching like the, the Karabi ending. Right. And then that's what got me. I'm just like, yo, whoever did this did such a great job. So I reached out to you and you responded. So thank you so much. Well, when anyone responds and says nice things about my work, I I usually respond. Okay. Yeah. And I, I guess I'm one of those artists, and I had a discussion with another filmmaker the other day. We we frequently get emails and people saying, "Hey, can you help me?" or "Hey, I liked your show" or whatever. And I send them as well. I, I if somebody does a good piece of work that I admire, if I can find their email, I'll at least say, "Hey, you did a great job," and I would just want to say, "Good work," and keep it up. And you'd be surprised; probably ten percent of people, probably less, actually respond. Yeah. And these are peers, some of them. And I don't want to put a ranking order, but some of them, you know, have done less films than I and they don't respond. And I just think like, man, if you can't at least say thank you to the people that reach out, then you're not, uh, you know, then I don't want to say what you're not. But, you know, just give it a shot. At least try and, and just say thanks, man. That's all it takes. Yeah, because we're we're all fans, like really, like we're all fans of stuff, you know, like um Everything and what I think is so romantic sometimes about that, you know, like I want to rock, you know, three part series is I feel like we're so far away from musicians acting like complete lunatics that it's almost fun to always go back to romanticize it and be like, holy shit, I can I could never act like Motley Crue, but it's fun to watch and listen to these stories. It's like, wow. I never want to snort a line of ants with Ozzy, but it's fun to always go back and be like, this is, yeah. you know, so what, what it happened. If, if you were hanging out with Ozzy and he asked you to do snort a line of ants, you'd probably do it though. Hey, you know what? I would you, probably do it. I, so like, I haven't, I haven't touched anything in like 20 since like 1998, but I always say this. I always said if, if Lemmy for Motorhead offered me a shot or if like Snoop, or Willie Nelson offered me a joint. I, I you might have to start the clock all over again because it's like <laughs> if it was ants, you'd still be sober. If it was true. ants. You know what? That's a really good point. <laughs> if you're smoking with uh, Willie or Snoop, though, you may be high for months. Yeah, I've heard Willie yeah. shit is out of this world. So yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, there, there is something to what you say, and and I don't. It, it, it without question. Uh, musicians do not party like they used to. They just don't. And it's actually not cool anymore. You, you know, if, if someone were to come out on stage chugging a bottle of Jack, you know, there's kids in the audience. Like, I would I, come on, man, that's not a good role. You can't drink like that, like you did. Uh, it, it, you know, one of the managers I spoke with who was in the film, Vicki Hamilton, 
she said, I said, do they party like they used to? She goes, no, you'll go backstage and they will, uh, they'll be drinking green smoothies and they want to go to bed because they want to get up and do Pilates nowadays. And a lot of the older rock stars from that era, God, they have kids, you know, and they're 40, 50 years old. Like I can't party all night. Um, So it is, it's a completely different era. Also in this age of cell phones, you can't go out and be an idiot anymore. (laughs) You're going to get caught and you're just not respected for being an idiot and doing stupid, you know, stupid things in a hotel. So it is, it is an era. And I want to kind of say, I, 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 I think that, you know, that, that 80 or 92 era, 91, that was kind of the last era of rock stardom. Yeah. That stupid uh, drinking heavily, partying women, sex, drugs, and rock and roll. I think that was the last era of it. Nirvana then came along and grunge came along and it didn't mean they didn't party, but they didn't make a show of it. Yeah, no, you're you're right. It wasn't until like later on where like, you know, maybe some of like the trap rappers or like uh the SoundCloud, you know, rappers like, you know, we're we're pretty knowledgeable at, about hip hop as well. So I think that shifted a little bit to them, you know, a little bit, you know, and then they, they, well, they kind of ended Gene up. Gene Simmons always said that that hip hop stars were the new rock stars in the traditional sense. But but going back to what you were saying, Tyler, about, you know, the age of cell phones and stuff and these artists back then could maintain this air of mystery and be have this larger than life kind of thing and like sam was saying uh, how, why this this doc particular works the humanizing like like someone like um i love this i love the vh1 countdown shows where they used to do the one hit wonders because those stories interested me more than the people that really yeah. made it so like like a janet gardner who you know this has this wild ride comes up now what do i do it's over you know, goes into this dental field. Like, that's fascinating to me. And seeing them as as regular people when you grew up with them as, as these deities, I, I love that aspect of it. Yeah, and that I love too. Um, I, I If I watch Rock Docs and I love Rock Docs, it's never the second act I love. It's never the, you know, then we were huge and we fought and the bands fought and we broke up and we made a lot of money and we got into trouble. I always liked the beginning. I always liked that we were wanting to be rock stars and we were signed and then i i kind of what what most what most rock docs don't do is cover like after a little bit of like after the big huge hits but what's interesting about that era is that it's just kind of timing you know these guys had they wanted to be musicians they had that american dream and for us and and you guys are still chasing it you know, for, for my generation growing up in the 80s, that's what you wanted. You want to be a rock star. It's from Fight Club. Remember when Tyler Durden says we grew up believing that we could be millionaires, uh, rock stars and movie gods, and we can't. And it, we're getting we're pissed off about it. But we believe that. And so for that generation to want to be rock stars, to live that American dream, to be rich, famous and have everything you want to try and have that happen, to come this close or to have it happen. And then for no reason of your own, you're just not wanted anymore. The world gets rid of you and says, we don't, you know, we don't like this kind of music anymore. I wanted to explore that. What happens after that? What happens when your rock star dream that you work for really hard is taken from you and why? Man, and and, and you broke it up into three parts. I want to be somebody. Um, headed for a heartbreak, and then the last episode of Smells Like Change, which is such a great, you know, such a great, you know, combination, you know, uh, name for it for that episode. But before we do that, like, um, what is your relationship with the I Want to Rock generation? Uh, like, basically, the music of it. Are you were you a casual, or was that something that you grew up with that made you be like, oh, I want to tell these stories? Well, uh, I was ten years old in nineteen eighty one. So, uh, you know, I I was in high school right during this period and it wasn't necessarily my favorite type of music. I mean, I was a, I, I mean, I listened to everything from uh, from country to in excess. Same, yeah. to, I mean, I was a huge Zeppelin fan and Van Halen fan, but it was really, really difficult to not be aware of, uh, you know, of Whitesnake and. Skid Row and Poison 
uh, you know, and Motley Crue, they were everywhere. They were ever present, especially if you were a dude hanging out in a small town. That's what you did. You, you listened to that music. So I was aware of it. I wasn't a huge fan of it. I was raised, oddly enough, as a Mormon. Um, I no longer am. Oh, so I always had that, like, it was Satan. It was like a satanic music, mm-hmm. which both scared me away and also drew me to it. Attracted, yeah. yeah. Sure. Uh, the titillation of this evil music that, in hindsight, wasn't the evil forbidden. At all. Yeah. <laughs> right. uh, so I was very aware of it. Um, but again, like you said, I, I wasn't. When this, when I when I had the idea to do this idea, it was after I did. I want my MTV. I wanted to look at it differently. I wanted to say, what is it about these characters that didn't do it, that couldn't make it? And kudos to Paramount Plus for yeah. seeing that and me saying, like, it's not. I'm not going to get Tommy Lee in this film. I'm not going to get Brett Michaels. I'm going to get guys and people you don't really know to tell their story. And they got it. They understood it. Which which made it more interesting, I think, you know, from that totally. angle, you know, like Vicki Hamilton in particular, like I didn't really know her story, but like just like her talking about like managing poison, just everything about it was just like, oh, shit. And then the Guns N' Roses yeah. like story and all, everything. And I'm thinking like I can't imagine how hard it was to deal with Guns N' Roses in like 96 let alone like when she was dealing with them as like a woman, you know, not just dealing with them. They were living in her apartment. Like imagine having a young slash, a young asshole living, sleeping on your couch. And, and, and she's a remarkable story that few people know of. She's like this Forrest Gump of that era where she just was in touch and had her fingers in so many little or in so many huge bands and then got unceremoniously dumped. Primarily because she was a woman. So how did you go about picking like the the subjects in this movie, which are basically, let me see. um, So like Kip Winger plays like a pretty big role in it. Uh, Ricky Rackman has has a lot of stuff in there. Uh, John Karabi for sure. And uh, Dave Sabo and yeah, Vicki Hamilton that I just mentioned. So those are like, like I would say the main characters. Yeah, we kind of focus, I would say Ricky Rackman is more of a, uh, he's more of just an external voice. We had a few people who were the voices, uh, who were just the voices of, uh, you know, like we had Dee Snyder, Snyder, right? uh, Catherine Turman, who was a a writer, Craig Williams, who was hilarious and so much fun in the film, um, who was also a writer and wrote a great book called Mom, Have You Seen My Leather Pants? It's just a hilarious book of him being a hair metal artist in uh, in high school. So we had kind of outside external voices, and I know I'm forgetting a few others. No, the guy, uh, John, the guy, the guy who turned into um, the guy from Candy, I think was that turned yes, into Jonathan like, Daniel. Yeah, yeah, he turned into like Crush Management or whatever it was, which is like fucking huge. Like uh, he is unquestionably one of the biggest music managers of our generation, without it, question. Yeah, and yeah, he was sure. in a silly hair band called Candy. So was Butch Walker <laughs> though, and Butch Walker's the totally. Only yeah. Butch Walker has a cameo in the film, just yeah. a moment at the very end when uh, when Jonathan Daniel is talking to Butch Walker because he represents Butch Walker. For sure. I mean, a lot of guys, look, I forget his name, but the lead singer Weezer was in a hair band. Oh, I yeah, Rivers. The, yeah, Rivers. Yeah. Rivers Cuomo, who yeah, yeah. Jonathan Daniel represents as well. So as far as like choosing the characters, you know, we interviewed a lot of people. I always knew Kip Winger was going to be in it because, you know, A... Uh, if anyone took it in the shorts, as far as like, if anyone was the, un, the poster child for how much people hated hair metal at that time, it was Kip Winger. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not just the Metallica, but the Beavis and Butthead. Yeah. And, and, and the crazy thing about Kip Winger is he is actually, he's got talent. Like he's a true musician and he's a really good musician. And he just came up at a time and he even says, you know, they, they I was mismanaged. They wanted me to dress funny and do my hair funny. And, I, you know, I, I did. I shouldn't have done that. I should have been authentic. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I like what he's doing now. The fact that he is how many musicians want to write symphonies? I guarantee you probably 90 percent of them, maybe more, say I'd love to write a symphony, yeah. you know, or do a saucy jack. If you want to do this spinal tap reference, <laughs> how many of them do it? One, two. Kip Winger is right. actually doing composing symphonies and 
good ones. So when I first interviewed him, I did a pre-interview with him and he told me, he goes, we were playing 10,000 seat arenas. Two months later, I was playing for 10 people at a Borders bookstore. And that shift of being, you know, the feeling it must be to be in front of 10,000 people screaming your name. And we reference that in the film. We have Kip Winger saying, what's it like to be a rock star? And when you're there and all of them are screaming for you, I mean, that feeling, most of us mere mortals will never, ever know. I've been backstage at massive shows. And just to see and feel that they're screaming for someone who's 20 feet away from you or 30 feet away from you, it's unbelievable. Yeah. So he had that. And then just like that, he was gone, just gone. Mm. And not only gone, he unceremoniously taken from him. You know, he said his wife went into a blockbuster video with a winger shirt a winger jacket and just got screamed at, just yelled at and mocked and made fun of, which is there ever a more eighties phrase than a winger jacket at a blockbuster. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, so I always wanted to follow Kip Winger and, and and because he was such an interesting character. Uh, John Karabi, when I heard of his story, I loved the fact that, you know, Karabi, for those who haven't watched the show, if you are, it's just a spoiler alert. He was in a pretty successful band or was on the verge of success called The Scream. And in 92, they were just starting to get big. And he probably could have escaped the hair metal moniker. He probably could have gotten past it because The Scream is not really that silly, fluffy hair metal. Uh, But then he joined Motley Crue. And, you know, was that a bad idea? Good idea? I mean, the biggest band in the world says we want you to be their front man. Who would do? Who wouldn't say yes? Well, probably a number, but... It's not easy to replace your front man. Name a band Ever, that yeah. successfully name a band that successfully replaced their Besides A C D C I can't think of it. Well, Van that's Halen. It. Van, Van Halen. Halen. That's right. Those, that's those, that's those, two. Are, those are the three. I no, actually no, only two. Yeah, so Van Halen and ACDC, because it sure as fuck wasn't Motley Crue. Right. And, and, but also you gotta know that Van Halen, the stars weren't necessarily the lead singers. Yeah, you know, I mean, true, true. Eddie yeah. Van Halen was basically the star of Van Halen. So. The name, yeah. What I yeah. love, what about love about Van Halen is that they were like, "Fuck it, we'll do it again," and they tried to get like Gary Sharon, and then the <laughs> audience was like, "Ah, right, you know what? Fuck you guys for even trying that." <laughs> you know, we gave, no. we gave, we gave you Van Hagar. How sure. dare you? <laughs> it's fun. What you were saying though, too, about about Kip Winger and how you know that that look that he had and stuff like that, how the labels were kind of probably influencing and dressing these artists. Like I look at like a band like Cinderella. Cinderella, like if they didn't have all that confidence, whatever, and the makeup and they sounded like ACDC. They were, you know what I mean? They didn't need to do that whole look, but I mean, you know, that's what happens. These are three bands that just played our friend's theater in Patchogue on Long Island. Mm, So, so Cinderella, and then Winger and John Karabi played the show just recently. So that's well, funny. Well, all, funny. All these bands, you know, the it's the you know the people that are eight, that grew up on it want to go out and hear that music. So they've had like you know it took a while for them to be accepted again. You know what I mean? Yeah. But uh, yeah. these Rocklahoma festivals start popping up and this and that and yeah, they're big. It's big, and we we touch on that in the film. It is big, and you get these guys. I mean, look, name. Six contemporary artists that could sell out a stadium. Yeah. Because I'll tell you, I could name 15 from the 80s and 90s that could easily sell out an arena from Bruce Springsteen to Madonna to Poison to Motley Crue to ACDC. I mean, the list could go on, but contemporary artists that could sell out an arena, but Taylor Swift, the Killers, Gaga. Maybe the Korean bands. I don't want to know what they're called. BTO or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. I, I don't know enough contemporary music. To know. I don't know what that I, is all about, but I know it's very popular. It is super popular. Yeah, like other than like the Killers, like uh, maybe the it's Foo like Fighters. Language uh, planet. Yeah. yeah, the Foo Fighters possibly, but I still see them as kind of a remnant of the holdover of the nineties. Mm. So, so gr- like, you know, it's funny, like I was wondering, like I was looking at your filmography. Right. And I was like, I wonder what his relationship to uh, religion was. And you just mentioned it. And a lot of the work that you did, um, you know, especially like the first one, was it Sons of Perdition? Yeah, I think it was. That was like yeah. an interesting 
plot. I didn't get a chance to watch it, but like, can you just give us like a rundown of it? Because I, I feel like with what you just described, like you might be closer aligned to it than I thought maybe. <laughs> sure, very much so. Um, Sons of Perdition was my first film that came out in, God, what did it come out in? 2010? 2010, I believe, it premiered at Tribeca. Uh, Sons of Perdition it, it tells the story of three boys who were kicked out of their polygamous community in Southern Utah. Uh, there's a small polygamous community in the FLDS, Warren Jeff's group. And they would routinely kick out boys, young boys, 14, 15, 16 years old. They just kick them to the curb because if you want to marry seven women in order to get to heaven, you got to get rid of some of the band. So they kick these kids out. And mind you, they have no contact with the outside world, no education. They can't watch movies. They can't read books. They can't even talk to girls. And then one day they're said, you're, you no longer have a family, you're on your own, good luck. And they just literally drive them to the edge of a road, edge of the city and say, get out of here. So we followed three boys for three, two and a half years and watched them grow up in a world they knew little about. Uh, the film premiered at Tribeca, it did very well. Oprah, uh, Oprah bought it, made it part of her Oprah documentary club. Wow. And it is in many ways my story because while I didn't grow up in a polygamous environment, I grew up as a Mormon yeah, and uh, had to kind of, when I left the faith, I kind of had to, you know, because being a Mormon isn't a weekend, you know, it's not like a Catholic where you can go to church on Christmas and Easter and be a decent Catholic. It's a constant in your life. It's very difficult to be a Mormon and leaving it was very difficult. So it was my story in many ways. So how, like, in, in a way, like, so like the filmmaking, how does that like, uh, when did you really want to start doing that then? I was 10, 10 years old, um, and I saw Indiana Jones and the Raiders of the Lost Ark. That'll do it. I was like, you grew up in Salt Lake City in Utah? I, yeah, for the most part. I moved there when I was eight, and then I grew up. I, I wasn't in Salt Lake City. I was in a small town called Pleasant Grove, okay. very kind of idyllic town if it wasn't full of white Mormons. But, um, you know, right on the edge of the mountains, really nice environment. But yeah, I wanted to be a filmmaker. and. It wasn't really welcomed as a you know a young Mormon boy, but it's what I did. Yeah. Um. So after were that, were you always one, drawn? Oh, I'm sorry. No, I was going to say. I know you watched. I, I I love the the MTV one. I I saw the Netflix one as well. But I know Brian saw the Amazing Randy one too. So like I know you probably want. Yeah. An honest liar. Honest yeah. yeah. That was that was uh, wonderful. I. I, I always heard that guy's name from like Carson back and I'm like, I'm 50 years old. I'm close. I'm around your age and stuff. I remember the hearing yeah, that name Carson so yeah. and right. And, and, but really learning a lot about him. He, he was a magi uh, magician and he really dedicated his life toward exposing all these hoaxes and psychic hoaxes, like the Sylvia Browns and whatnot that you always hear lying to vulnerable people. But it was really, it, He's a really interesting character, and it just shows the ease of media manipulation, which is something we go through a lot right now. And and the quote that I heard in the film that people don't want truth, they want romance and lies. And I think uh, right. Right. It, right. it's so true of how we are and how fractured our news community is and stuff. So it, it's a very timely uh, piece of work. I enjoyed it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, that calls to mind my other film on Netflix, uh, Murder Among the Mormons. And the final line of that is, uh, does that mean we're all living lies? People don't want to know the truth. They don't want to know it. And I believe that. I think that there's a part of us, especially in this age, when truth, I mean, for God's sakes, everything I need to know is right here in my phone. I mean, it's amazing. Yet we find the truth we want to hear. True, and, yeah, and yeah. despite... You know, despite messengers telling us that this is actually the truth and look at it, they'll completely throw it out. So I was fascinated with that was my second film, An Honest Liar. Um, and I didn't really know who James Randi was. I kind of tertiarily knew him. And uh, but as soon as I did, somebody said, you should make a film on the uh, James Randi. About 30 minutes of research. And I was like, I'm going to make this film. And, you know, when you when you're a documentary filmmaker, in some, when you choose a subject, it's it's insanely difficult because you have to live above the store for years. 
And it has to be something you have access to. It has to be something that you can actually do. It has to be something that's marketable that you can raise money for that people will eventually want to watch. Yeah. Um, and it, is it something that I like personally because it's running a marathon and at mile 20 of this marathon, you're going to hate it. You're going to wish you'd never made this movie. But if there's something still in you that wants to make that movie, then you can keep moving, keep going forward. But uh, James Randi and his story is remarkable. And what we didn't expect when we made this film, we were just telling the story of James Randi, is that a twist would happen. And a lie that had been hidden in his life, this man who was supposedly the purveyor of honesty, uh, he had a lie hidden in his background that would occur after 40 years of hiding it or 30 years of hiding this secret. It came out while we were filming. And uh, it made the film that much more rich. Wow. I didn't watch it. So I'm going to, I can't wait to. It's great. Can't wait. Now, to now, did you always want to do documentaries? Was that always your goal? Like what drew you towards that field? Were there certain docs you saw that had a big influence on you or what? I, no, I actually never did. I want to make comedies. And that's what I kind of started. I started on that path. I made a few comedy shorts. I wrote a number of comedy scripts. And then I was doing, uh, I was doing commercials. And I started doing comedy commercials and I was making a shitload of money doing it. And then one day I was literally in a grocery store and it was like two in the morning. We were shooting this grocery store commercial. I just had this weird epiphany. All of a sudden it just hit me like, this is not what I want to do when I was 10 years old. I did not. I did. I, I grew up wanting to be a filmmaker. I don't want to sell olives for Albertsons or whatever grocery store. I, was, I don't even remember. Um, and so I stopped and I just said, I'm not going to make commercials. And I took a big financial hit and I said, I'm going to do something important. I'm going to do films. I'm going to do a documentary. Um, and I didn't really want to do a documentary. Now, I love documentaries. Who doesn't love documentaries? Oh, yeah. and, uh, War Room was one of my favorite documentaries of all time. And mm -hmm. I vividly remember watching it in college. And uh, not only did it make me probably a, a Democrat, but it wanted to make me a documentary filmmaker, I'd like to say. Upon rewatching it, it's not as good, by the way. It's just not as good as it yeah. was back in, what, 93, I think is when it came out. Something, something like that, yeah. Um, but when Sons of Perdition came around and I knew that story, I was like, this is my story. And uh, I'll tell you what helped is that there was a girl I was chasing and was in love with and we weren't dating. But she's like, we should do that together. And I was like, yeah, we should do it together and hang out. Yes. And we did. Two and a half years later, three years later, we finished the film. Uh, so it always helps when a girl says, let's yes, do this. Yeah, I've listened. You're preaching to the choir on that. <laughs> yeah, why does anyone pick up a guitar? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I, I'll be playing a show in a little bit now, even though the, headli <laughs> the headliner just canceled because they got COVID. So shout out no to them. No shit. Yeah, we, I just got the email. They, they were like the headliner and we're playing. And uh, I guess they, they were on tour. So somewhere along the tour, they got sick. So, but James Hetfield just got the COVID. They Did just he? canceled their show. Uh, yeah. Their show oh, tonight. Uh, yeah. God, man, it's, we're Here kind we go of again. turning a blind eye to the fact that it's coming back, aren't we? I mean, you mm. know, at, at the end of the day, like, you know, it's just the, the gravity, like hopefully everyone just treats, you know, it's like that, that's what I want to know, you know, like I, hopefully no one's like super sick, you know? So, yeah. Yeah. Hopefully um, we, are smarter about it as well. Hopefully. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, so uh, I, one of my favorite documentaries is a music documentary. And what you said about the amazing Randy just kind which of- Which one? Uh, which one? You can't just uh, hop over. No. So uh, Wilco, I'm trying to break your heart. That's a great doc. That's a great yeah, one. It's a great Right. Doc. So here you get, you know, the, this, this band that's, you know, uh, signed to Warner Brothers. They're making this record. And then along the way, they decide to fire like, you know, one of their like- you know, main members, Jay Bennett. Uh, then they get dropped from their label all while they're making this documentary that was not supposed to go this right. way. But then, then it turned into like just like a like probably their biggest album with Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Um, so that is definitely one of my favorites and stuff. So uh, if you could name like a, a couple that, that you know, along the way that you watch that you, you really uh, liked. Totally. I mean, I think one of the greatest stocks of all time is Anvil. The oh, story of Anvil. Yeah, I mean, it's just it's yeah. fucking emotional. It's crazy. It's yep. funny. It's a real Spinal Tap, uh, yes. and, and that film is kind of what I wanted to do with I Want to Rock because it oh. has that we had a hot moment in the sun, and now we're you know delivering school lunches. 
and the producer of that, Rick Cramp, is uh, a producer of three of my films. So, oh. I, you know, I, including I Want to Rock. Um, we, so we, 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 we praise that a lot. We, we talk about it just because it's there's something so sincere about their, you know, <laughs> we always go back. We're like, man, I really don't remember this band, you know, whatever. And you could say whatever you want about their music. But God damn it. Those two guys didn't fucking believe everything that they were saying. So there's yeah. like there's a beauty. To beautiful. That for sure. Yeah. 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 It's amazing. And that, yeah. you know, there's so many great, funny and silly scenes in there and beautiful scenes that when, after, when they fight and yeah. then they're like, I fucking love you, man, because yeah. I love you. Yes. <laughs> like, to... I don't know where to cry and laugh or laugh. Getting the money uh, from the promoter. <laughs> oh, just, hey, man. Unbelievable. Very good. And I know the director of that. And he did a screening in his home on 35 millimeter of that film. And I asked him a question about and the, the promoter, that promoter scene. He said that was the first day of filming and the DP at the end of it, at the end of it, he goes, so these guys are actors, right? You hired these guys? He goes, no, these are real guys. That's amazing. So, so the, the, it, uh, the, I'm sorry, one last thing. The director, right? If I remember correctly, he was like a fan of theirs a while ago. Is that is that what it was? He, I, it's stupid. I forget his name. Um, uh, he, he, he worked for them at, when he was a teenager. That's I what think it was. He was like yeah. a roadie or something. And then he... He wrote the Tom Hanks film, The Terminal. Yes. Okay. It's all and coming back. It was such a horrible experience. He had such a horrible experience. He just said, like, I want to get out of Hollywood. I want to do something important. So uh, that film was just re-released not too long ago. If you haven't seen it, see it. Sasha. Uh, another, another, Sasha. Sasha Gervais? Gervaisi? Yeah. Gervaisi. Yep. Yeah. Uh, uh, another great music doc that is totally underappreciated is uh, Mistaken for Strangers which yes. is about the national of which, you know, a decent band, not necessarily my flavor, but the I love them. Doc is amazing, man. Cause it is not, what I love is uh, docs that aren't about, you, you know, what I hate, I think is more important is docs that are just like that standard token cookie cutter music doc. Here's the band. We all became bandmates. We hated each other. We fought, we broke up. One of us did too many drugs and now we're back together and we're playing. It just, I hate that. Um, if you can't find something else interesting about it, especially in this world with so many music docs, uh, Mistaken for Strangers did that. It wasn't about the national. It was about the brother, the brother. and and his dream and his craziness and his uh, being in the shadow of a famous fan or a famous brother. Uh, Anvil wasn't about the music. It was about these guys who wanted to do something. You're right. Yeah. Uh, so and I that, love those kind of music docs. That, that band, yeah, because it was like, so the drummer... The guitar player so it's like three sets of brothers but the one brother you know the singer's brother matt's brother isn't in the band so he made you know it was just this thing yeah it was great great angle for a documentary and i, I totally. love there that band has three albums that i really love and i was just having a conversation about them recently where i feel like ever since like 2010 they haven't really put out anything that i loved as much so well they're they're aligned with taylor swift now from what i've read they're very close yes to yeah so yeah songwriter um so yeah i mean those are two of my probably favorite music docs and if i if i searched my mind i could probably think of some more but i can't right uh, now that's, I that's mean, yeah that's, that's good. good that's good uh, just... i liked uh you know i liked uh the, the 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 laurel canyon doc not the not the doc the three-part series the two-part series that was on stars that was good Great and one. well told and creative and unique the other well uh, laurel canyon doc was not good um I don't remember what it's called. Echo in the Canyon, I think. I think that's what it's called. Yeah, yeah. Um, um, but yeah, I mean, and, and, and just ones that try to make it a little bit more than the music. Uh, and at the end of this, I'll tell you about my doc that I'm currently entrenched in that is about the music, but not really. I love it. Yeah, because okay. I, I know, I know, I, I know another thing that we'll talk about after because I mentioned I was going to go see a band and you had something to say about that. So I'm just curious about that as well. Oh, well, that one may not. That one is, uh, I don't know if I can really talk about that. Yeah, yeah, but, yeah, yeah. No, but yeah, that one is understood. A, yeah. I'm on a short list to do a doc that I would kill to do. Yeah. And I mean, Little Hint is like, it's a Chicago area band. Yeah. Uh, and very influential and very creative and like the perfect. Yeah, perfect there's so story much about that about band it. that I would love to know. 
<laughs> totally. And then the lead singer, which is, you yeah. know, for, brilliant for, and fucked up at the same time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. For like three years, they were like the most important band in my life. For sure. Oh, your so, listeners are going nuts right now. <laughs> yeah. So um, you know, there, there was a listen, MTV was one of the greatest curators, you know, growing up, you know, like when you get home, you just put it on in the background and you were able to um, make the documentary on MTV. I want my MTV. How the fuck did that happen? Like that must oh, have been man. like, a, like how exciting would that have been? Like, you know, for you? I, I had, we had no reason making that talk. We, you know, we, we shouldn't have done it. Doing that was just pure gumption and will and stupidity. Okay. A guy came to me that I barely knew, first-time filmmaker, and says, I want to make a doc on MTV. I raised $100,000 to start it. And I've interviewed a few people. And, and you know, the amount of no's we got of people like, yeah, who doesn't want to make a doc on MTV? And they're like, we're not going to, you know, every time somebody comes and interviews us, you know, we, we talk to the founders of it. They say every time somebody comes and interviews us and they never finish it, no one finishes it, but we're not going to do it. So just chipping away and getting a few people to say yes and keep moving and keep moving. And then we'd get one rock star. Our first big one was Sting. And once we got Sting, then it was verified. And once we got two or three founders, then the other founders were like, you have, well, if you're going to interview that guy, you have to interview me as well. So it was a, it was a, it was a slow move. And then A&E came in um, and uh, uh, we finished the film. I'm insanely proud of that film because it's, Again, while it is about MTV, it's more about music on television and the changing music world that we are continually seeing. Yeah, it's it was just really well done, I, uh, and it was amazing. I didn't really know the Michael like Nesmith uh, connection. Yeah. You know how like everything started. I'm just like, holy shit! Like that dude. Rest his soul, man. Yeah. That dude was so smart. Yeah. And so underappreciated. And I mean, what a story. I wanted to make his talk. Uh, and I begged sure. him and begged him. And every six months I'd come back and be like, I want to make your film about you. And yeah. he's going, nah, no thanks. No thanks. Yeah. Which I eventually, get. Which, yeah. Which I get. I get, you know. Yeah. And eventually I think they are making a Nesmith or not a Nesmith, but a monkey's talk. Okay. He, uh, uh he said, uh, I mean, you know, when I sat down and interviewed Mike, Mike Nesmith, I was like, tell me, answer this question. He goes, nope, I'm not going to do that. I'll start here. And he just went on this like 45 minute, beautiful diatribe rant about the evolution of music on television, starting with JFK. And I mean, nobody really knows that he was ostensibly the founder of MTV. Yeah. I mean, I'm like, for a minute there, I was like, I'm like, wait, are we talking about the same guy as I'm as I'm watching it? I'm like, it just didn't even really compute to me. I'm like, wait, did I miss something? Is that the guy with the hat? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> did I miss and something? And a guy who's kind of like locked into his world. He, you know, his mother invented Whiteout. Whiteout, yep. And yeah. made millions and then died and left all of it to Mike Nesmith. He had, you know, he wasn't, didn't even want to be in the monkeys. He, he went to the audition with a friend and just like said what the hell i'll join too and he played and he was wearing the stupid little hat and that's what set him apart next thing you know he's in the monkeys and very talented musician but he's sure. in a joke band you know the monkeys which was basically put together to be a spoof of the beatles yeah you're right right and then he starts mtv one of the the most influential uh, cultural experiences of all time and then walks away and says, I don't want to do it. Remarkable. Yeah. Gr growing up, what was your relationship with MTV being, you know, in the household that, that you grew up with? I didn't know if you were allowed to watch yeah, it. Uh, we were not allowed to watch MTV. MTV was not come to come through the holy doors of our Mormon world. Uh, so for me, it was that, that titillation. And when you'd go, I'd go to a friend's house and they had MTV and they just like turn it on and then they walk around the house. And I was like, are you just, it's right there. I don't yeah. want to miss a fucking second of it. And you're just like, <laughs> you just have it on. Like it's the radio. I was drawn to it. Sure. So when I made this film, I probably watched as much MTV in my life as someone had in a week growing up. Uh, so I kind of came at it with a different lens than someone who knew a lot about it. Oh yeah. When yeah. did you break away from the church? Like, how old were you? When you I was late, mid mid late twenties. It was a a slow, long process. I went on a Mormon mission. I did that whole thing, and mm -hmm. 
uh, came home and realized it wasn't for me and then found out some history about it that even drove me further away. Wow. I mean, that's such a heavy thing, you know, coming from like, I went to like Catholic school, but like it, like religion as hard as like, I would say my, you know, my grandmother, everyone else was like fake religious. They're like, oh yeah, you yeah. should go to church, but yeah. they, there's nothing churchish about them. But like my grandmother and her sisters were like, they were about that life 100%. Yeah. So uh, to yeah. me, it just never, like, even like at an early age, like I was just, I'm like, oh, I don't care. It, it doesn't. Yeah. Matter. I mean, don't downsell the the Catholic guilt that is in your DNA. It's there. <laughs> it's there. Yeah. You know, Mormons have the corner of the market on guilt, but Catholics have definitely, yeah, it's definitely I, there. I remember being like super young, like maybe I was like 12, 13, and we would go visit like my grandmother in Queens. And her sister like had two boys that were technically my second cousin, but closer in age to me. So we would always hang out. And on Sunday, if I stayed there the weekend, she would be like, you don't want to go to church. And she would like guilt me into going. I'm like, I guess I'm going to sit here for a fucking hour. You know, it's so, so yeah. boring. Church is yeah. so boring. Dude. So Mormon my... church was three hours, three uh, hours of boredom. Uh, wow. Yeah, and it's not like the Baptists, like singing and dancing. It's just this boredom, boring, boring, yeah. boring. That's that's like uh, that's the Godfather right there. Basically, three hours. That's a long. <laughs> that's thing. right. Yeah. Except I'd rather watch that every week. Um, I, I want to mention somebody that you had on the MTV documentary, which I love. One of my favorite songwriters. I'm just going to mention it anyway. Uh, Jack Antonoff from Bleachers. Oh, yeah. I saw yeah. that. I was like, holy shit. I'm like, fucking Jack Antonoff is just hanging out here. Yeah. And he totally he totally starts uh, post post title. We have like an opening that it, we call it, you know, BFD, that MTV was a big deal. And then title, and then he comes up and he says a very profound statement. Uh, and then at the end, he kind of bookends it with this very profound statement about MTV. Yeah. And 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 so he was such a wise, interesting guy. Uh, and, 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 you know, was one of those people who, you know, had that odd dreaming wanting to be a rock star i mean what he's from new jersey right so yeah yeah he's like this jersey kid who uh you know it has his fingers in so many mm. musicians nowadays and had so many amazing things to say he was so smart and so well-spoken and so passionate about mtv uh and he he he, he really led a lot lent a lot to the film yeah he uh he came from like a punk rock diy background you know, mm -hmm. like we have a lot of mutual friends that are like, oh, yeah, like he was in a band and he would tour and, you know, somehow he flipped that and he yeah, he's and now he's producing some of the biggest names. No, not some of the biggest names, the, the biggest, biggest names. Yeah. 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 Taylor in, Swift. In music. Lord. Yeah. Right. <laughs> he has yeah. Bruce Springsteen as a feature. Like, yeah. I'm like, how the fuck do you just get <laughs> Bruce Springsteen? Be like, yeah, I'll come do a verse for you. Right. You know, that's crazy. So. <laughs> Did you have some? That's a great. I, I love. Yeah. I want my MTV. It's a beautiful. It's a wonderful film. It's so much fun, and you know, it, it's kind of, uh, you know, A and E picked it up, and it so they don't have a streaming service. So unfortunately, you know, it's kind of hard to see. It's not on Netflix. It's not. Yeah. It's just, I saw it on Prime. It. Yeah, I saw it on Prime. Actually, it's up right now. Oh no uh, shit! Oh, I didn't know. Yeah. That. Yeah. I yes, didn't... that's that's where oh. I saw it before we uh, had the interview here. Yeah. Really? I oh, wow. sure. I rented I it off that. YouTube. I don't know if it's included. I might have rented it. I don't know. Yeah. Uh, yeah. 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 Oh. But uh, it, it, you can get it. But uh, also, if I could mention, too, uh, about the I Want to Rock, which is up on Paramount, uh, people, if you're listening right now, three part series uh, where you get to the Nirvana takeover there, which which is, you know, I explain to my son sometimes he's into rock and roll. And so it's hard to explain to somebody if they weren't there, like how in a pre-internet world something a video could just change everything the landscape overnight and it's just hard to equate but what i never really thought about and nirvana's always blamed with killing this genre but the garth brooks factor right oh wow yeah i never really thought of that shit but yeah a lot of mainstream pe people that aren't really in the music but hair metal was popular so they did that and that's what that that hor horrific modern country thing is i just which i can't stand but like he took a lot of those people as well yeah so that's props to you i never thought of that 
Yeah, and I will I will say, I mean, you know, Ricky Rackman gets a lot of credit for 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 comparing and talking about Garth Brooks and comparing mm-hmm. contemporary country to hair metal. But I'll say it right here. I fed him that line. I fed him both of them. And when I discovered that and, and looked at how many albums Garth Brooks sold compared, I mean, he outsold what Nirvana, Poison, yep. uh, uh, Soundgarden. I can't remember. I list them all. These huge, big bands of that 92, he outsold them all combined. Yeah. Um, and the contemporary country is 80s hair metal. It is the 80s hair metal. And I'm not a fan of contemporary country either. It is, there are some bright spots. And I grew up on country music. I love 80s country. I love outlaw country of the Hell 80s. Yeah. Yeah. I love it's 70s. It's so far apart from It's that. so yeah. far apart. There's no heart. It's just this party music, silly party music. And it is, uh, contemporary country is essentially the hair metal of today. You're it right. Is, it's, it's like it's pour some sugar on me. Guys, Garth Brooks is still selling football stadiums out. He's yeah. still one of the biggest draws in the world. It's insane. He, I mean, I, country artists are some of the biggest draws in the world right now. Oh, yeah, I mean, Luke sure. Bryan can sell out any stadium anywhere. But Garth Brooks, sure. I remember. So that same aunt that I mentioned, she would bring home Billboard magazine. And I, as a kid, I loved charts. I, I loved it. She worked for like BMG or something like that. So she would bring home these like CD samplers and I would go through um, the billboard charts and no fences, like all these records, like sure guns and roses and all the other bands were on those charts, but Garth Brooks would have like his th- last three albums on the top 10 repeatedly back when people actually still went to a store to buy a physical yeah. fucking CD. Yeah. Like he, he like he was like, up in there were like 11, 12, 13, 14, 15 million an album. Um, yeah. And uh, I remember that's why <laughs> I, I even remember those songs. But yeah, the country today, or at least the popular country, doesn't really seem very aligned with that. You know, like we listen to like the drive by truckers or like Jason Isbell. Oh, like, that doesn't count. That, yeah. That yeah. That doesn't oh, count. That's uh, that's uh, Jason Isbell is one of my favorite artists. And that talk is great, by the way. So he's so fucking great. Good. And his lyrics are remarkable. That is not trite contemporary country of hanging out with your friends and she's so fine. She's a hot chick and I'm drinking beers out of a solo cup or I love my tractor. There's a great article in the New Yorker about three weeks ago about country and Americana yeah, and how those two are so vastly different um, Mm. and and how Americana, which is by and large much better in my opinion. Uh, You know, you got great America, Jason Isbell, Brandy Carlisle. They're great Americana artists. And then you've got this fluffy, silly, uh, you know, vapid, and I'm just going to say a vapid contemporary country and how Americana is completely undersold, completely does not sell as much as the other ones. But I guess that's the way it's always going to be. Like the There's masses. always going to be a vapid mass, like what they gravitate to. And it almost, it's going to be country. It's going to be hair rock at one point. It might sure. be boy bands of NSYNC era that pulls yeah. Kurt Cobain, you know, there's always going to be something vapid out there. There's always going to be fine dining and there's always going to be fast food. And the majority of Americans eat fast food. So, And Isbell, Isbell, and seriously, once again, like listening to, we we just saw him, he played Long Island not too long ago. When he left the drive-by truckers, I was so bummed because I'm like, what the fuck? I'm like, how are you going to leave this band? And then a few years later, he puts out Southeastern and I was like, (sighs) wow. It's remarkable. I'm like, wow. I'm like, okay, I guess he's going to be okay. But then you take lyrics like um, Elephant, but then you also take, you know, the later record, uh, If We Were Vampires, which is just. I was just going to say that. It's a great, it's a great song. Like you want to talk about writing lyrics that will crush. Yeah. It's like, whoa, it's such a realistic way of being like, hey, you know, you're with the person that you're with, but eventually one of you is going to die. And you're like, you're like, damn guy you're like relax but it's it's written and done in such a great way he is just unreal yeah. and that that hbo doc was amazing but it also also showed me how cool his wife is like she is yeah. just so badass yeah. um and also a great artist too. yeah i mean isbel yeah you know about a week ago my partner diana she goes like why do you only listen to jason isbel right now and i guess i'm just on a kick 
Sure. And I, you know, I'm doing the dishes and I'm like, Hey Siri, play Jason Isbell. Cause it just has comforted me. And I go, you don't understand. Like as a, as a boy growing up in a small town, this was what it was like when Jason Isbell sings about the, the, the guys working for the County yeah. and getting drunk and watching the football game and getting drunk under the bleachers and being in a small town. And, and there's a, uh, I can't remember the name of the song, but when he says, it just occurred to me that I can actually leave. Yeah. You're just yeah. like, Oh my God, that is like the, the crux of every kid who grew up in a small town. And I go, that's what I grew up in. That's what I, and she's, you know, she grew up in Boston. Like she doesn't understand the lyrics and what it means to listen yeah. to Jason Isbell. Um, it, it, it means something like a song, like cast iron skillet. I can listen oh. to him and go like, I don't understand what these lyrics are. But I think I get it. I think it's about a guy who murdered someone in a store and the pain it caused. And you just you're 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 in it. And you don't get that with I'm in love with my tractor. You That's... don't get that with <laughs> I'm gonna drink until I, you know, because I'm partying is awesome songs. Uh and... it takes it takes hurt, it takes pain, it takes realism to write that kind of lyrics. That song that song in particular is my favorite song off the new record, Cast Iron Skillet. It's just unbelievable just so yeah. good um yeah. in closing i just wanted to oh, mention can i just say two more things before you say that yeah you know we yeah. Want to keep you forever um yeah. no no i wanted thing. to compliment you that on the bumpers uh the segues in between on the cassettes and the rewind and fast oh, forward i i love that little little touch that was right. fantastic for the and i also wanted to compliment that moment the the karabi talking about his dad and there's some of the most touching footage I've, I've seen. And like, I, I couldn't tell you in, in how long it was so sweet. Yeah. Um, yeah. First off, I'll address the, the, uh, the cassette. And, and yes. that was my editor, Brian Getz, who's a, amazing. And we had a really hard time with the chronology of this because we we kind of jump, we kind of stay on a character, but something that happened with Skid Row in 92. And then we jump to something that happened with, John Crabby in 89. Which and I like. couldn't do it chronologically. So we had this idea. He had an idea of having a cassette and it would rewind or fast forward. And then we'd put the date on it. And it, it was, you know, for us who grew up on cassettes and having to rewind and fast forward, we kind of know that. But the Krabi scene, when he talks about his father and when I pre-interviewed him and he told that story of his father, it, I, it, it, we all have our father issues, you know, we, as males, we all have this, like, I didn't do enough for my father. I didn't please him enough. I didn't work hard enough. I want to please my father. I want my dad to hang the hand Turkey on the fridge. And when Karabi, that was his story is no matter how hard I try, I can be in the biggest fan of the world. My father's not pleased. And I don't find out about it until later when he's dead. I watch, I've watched that film because I, I, I've probably seen it 40 times in rough cuts um, I cry each time. I honestly yeah. cry. And that's probably because I did the same thing. I couldn't please my father and I lost my father not but two, three years ago. And I, I weep at that scene. And that's the heart. It's, um, it is the it, heart. It's the heart of realism. And I want to be, a, a, I want this American dream. I want to do something and may I never do it. But what I was trying to do is actually please my father. And I don't know until after he's gone. It, it between, so, between that and like Kip talking about his wife and what happened later on and watching the symphony, those two things in particular um, were the things that me, I'm like, who the fuck direct directed this? Next and I'm just like, <laughs> looking. I'm like, whoever did just like, it just, it exceeded what everyone else does. It was just this extra exclamation. Like, yeah, cool. You know, everyone snorted Coke and, you know, right. fuck, yeah. fuck groupies and whatever you want to say. But like, when you got to that part, you're like, God damn, you're like this dude. Yeah, and I think that's, that's what I wanted to do. And I set out to do something with heart and emotion and realism and, and something that any audience member can relate to. Anyone can understand, you know, yeah. each of those characters has something. I want to be successful or I have mental health issues. or I want to please my father or I'm a female in a male dominated industry or I had something taken from me. Uh, you know, each of those characters has something that an audience can relate to. And I, 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 it, the, the series may not get as many views because people are like, well, where's, I want to hear Brett Michaels. I want to hear the sex, drugs and rock and roll. And they may not get the heart. And that's unfortunate for me. Yeah. 
Um, I, but I did everything I could to make it a good series. Because yeah, there's a million other docs they can see with Brett Michaels talking about that. That's why he is this so standout, you know? Yeah. I, I, I'll tell you right now that um, nothing but a good time. The book, which I read, is being made into a documentary by, oh. uh, by Jeff Tremaine. And he's a oh. great filmmaker and they'll make a great series. But it's 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 the complete opposite of the film I made. Um, and, and it'll probably get many more views because people still want to hear sex, drugs, and rock and roll. But you know, you know, you know it's funny. Okay. A friend of mine uh, gave me that book, and he uh, sends me books all the time as an ongoing joke because he knows that I don't like reading. So <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to this. That's an easy <laughs> one to get through. It's an easy one to get through. <laughs> very much sure. so. But uh, the last few things, um, just so people remember, Murder Among the Mormons is on Netflix. It's a three-part series docuseries and the story is fucking wild bananas like wow like that is and you made it with jared hess who directed napoleon dynamite right right which is like even if you want to like i read that and i was like wait that doesn't even like what's going on here right now um so (laughs) exactly people should watch that that story is one of those stories that you pull from like the, the real world and you're like, how can this even be a, a true thing? So how'd you stumble across that? Well, that, you know, the, the story is about a, a series of bombings that occurred in 1985 in Salt Lake city. And, uh, without getting too deep into it, the, the film, cause if, if you haven't seen it, yeah, I don't want to give away a spoiler yeah. alert. I mean, it's a big yeah. one. Yeah. But it's about, it's more about than about the murder. It's about documents and belief and religion and, you know, being a male and, and, and history and, and, and penmanship. And I mean, it, it's got all of these crazy elements, these crazy, crazy elements. And growing up as a Mormon and growing up in Utah, I was aware of the story, but it always had this mythology. It always had this monster mythology that something that happened, you know, it happened in 85, the bombings. I was 14 years old. I had, you know, Becky Fox on my brain, not bombings that happened. So it was always this mythology. And when I dug into it, I realized it'd make a hell of a story. Um, and uh, I, I took it out, tried to pitch it, and it didn't it was, didn't get anywhere, oddly enough. And then uh, Jared and I teamed up, and Jared Hess is a friend of mine. Uh, he's a Utah. We've known each other for a solid decade or more, actually. Um, and I said, would you want to do this with me? And he was like, absolutely, let's do it. And he'd never really made a doc before, but he knew docs and he loved the story. He's a Mormon as well. Uh, and we just dove in and made a really unique and crazy story. And like my other films, while it was, you know, even though it's a heady title or a murderous title, Murder Among the Mormons, it's really not about murder. It's not about true crime. It's more about belief. There's yeah, an underlying yeah. theme to it uh, yeah. that isn't necessarily true crime. Yeah, I, I super recommend it. Uh, and Netflix is like, it's amazing. Like things that live in obscurity elsewhere, once they go to Netflix, it's like, it's still kind of like a kingmaker. Like even like, I mean, even that's like where you want to go. Like, yeah. I, you know, I just did three part series for Paramount and actually Paramount is totally underrated. Their service is pretty good. They love have some it. great stuff. on. I it, love man. it. Yeah. Like the totally. offer, by the way, about the making the Godfather. Oh, yo okay so that was like i think that we did a top 10 last year that was my favorite show of the year yeah yes it was great and so paramount has some good things but if everyone either knows or has netflix and if you have something on netflix it will it may not be watched but people are at least aware of it uh so that's kind of the goal and while we're in the middle of a writer's strike i shouldn't praise netflix too much a writer's and actor strike and i mean hollywood right now is a mess people are it's really 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 tough time amongst very hardworking, passionate creative individuals are really struggling right now mentally emotionally financially and I, it'll the world will be a better place soon we hope but uh netflix is the place you want to go and murder among the mormons was great to play on netflix they were really great to work with they were amazing uh in giving notes and they promoted the hell out of it so yeah, we love that um, just the last thing I want to bring up was that Randy Bachman thing, you know, that 45. Yes, there we go. You know who it is. All right. Yeah. It's like, I mean, what a story. Like, just right. give us like a quick rundown. That's another in the line of like, I don't, I want to make a music doc. that's not about the music. 
And this is a film I'm currently in post-production on. We're finishing up. We're actually trying to find some finishing funds for an amazing film. If anyone out there wants to be a part of a, and I'll say it right now, it's, this may be my best work. I mean, it's amazing. It's oh, such yeah. a great story. And the story is about Randy Bachman, who some people may not know, but he was in the Guess Who and Bachman Turner Overdrive. So he had these huge hits, Taking Care of Business, Guess Who, uh, you know, American Woman, Ain't Seen Nothing Yet, Lying, Undone. Um, uh, I mean, there's dozens. There's dozens of great, huge songs. But when he was 14 years old, growing up in Winnipeg, he wanted to be a musician. He wanted to be a rock star. And he bought a guitar, a beautiful orange Gretsch, a very unique guitar. And he loved this guitar. It was his muse. It was his feather that made him fly as Dumbo. And he became a big, huge rock star. And he loved this guitar. And he took care of it. And he chained it to hotel toilets. And it was his it was his love. It was, he honestly, like it was his Gretsch. And it wrote these hits. And in 1976, while he was at the height of his popularity, uh, it was stolen. He left it with a roadie for a few minutes in a hotel, and it was taken from him. And his world fell apart. He, the band broke up. His wife divorced him. He lost millions of dollars, and he never wrote another hit again. And he spent 40 years trying to find this guitar. He bought hundreds of other Gretches trying to replicate the same magic and never could. And he spent his life trying to find this guitar in 2020 during the pandemic i'm kind of giving away the whole film but uh, in 2020 yeah. during the pandemic some internet sleuth tracked it down he found it found yeah. the guitar and that's all i'm going to say no no I, wow. I i remember i remember the story and then uh i didn't know that you were attached to it so i i'm glad that you you told that but it, it's basically up online a, a lot of that stuff but uh yeah the story's there you can find the story but we when i uh, you know, like I said earlier, I, I have a hard time choosing docs. You want to choose docs that you care about and that are important. And um, I routinely turn down ideas. This one was a email that Tal Bachman, Randy Bachman sent, sent to Rick Cram and Rick sent it to me. I got about halfway through the email and I was like, I'm doing this film. I'm doing yeah, it. Yeah. And then I called Rick and was like, I'm doing this film, but let me check with my wife, my partner first. Let me check. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's always wise. I gave her the email and she was like, you have, you're doing this, right? And I said, yeah. But what's funny is that it wasn't until like two hours later when I was like, oh, my God, I think Randy Bachman's a Mormon. And I looked it up and I was like, yeah, he is a Mormon. He was a Mormon. So the film is not just about Randy. Look, if, if someone said make a film about Randy Bachman, I'd probably be like, eh, it's not that. No, he was a musician. Sure. But make a film about Randy Bachman and his lost guitar. And I'll say, yes, make a film about Randy Bachman, who was a Mormon in the 1970s, a rock star and a Mormon at the same time. Like those two do not jive. Yeah. How you can play 250 shows in ostensibly one of the biggest bands of that era and play 250 shows with, you know, in the 70s when people were rock, I mean, those were rock stars in the 70s. To be a rock star in the 70s, you walked the fucking earth as a titan. You know what I mean? You weren't, oh, yeah. you, you were a rock star. You were yeah. a god. Those 70s rock stars, Hendrix and Zeppelin and The Who, you know, those were those were gods. They lived on a Mount Olympus. Yeah, but to be that and then to be a father and a Mormon and a husband, like though that's the interesting story that I try to tell is that that transition between the two and the faith of putting your life into a, a guitar and your your faith and trust into a muse. And this story, and then. I don't want to give away too much of the ending, but like it has this twist at the end that just, I mean, I, I watched it again. I probably watched it 20 times. Each time I cry, it's this beautiful, mm -hmm. beautiful story. Um, that's much more than about music. Wow. Yeah. Listen, I, so I, I met, I, I messaged you and you were super cool. And the more we talked, I was like every asshole on the planet has a podcast, but like you were so cool. And I was like, Oh my God. Maybe like he. Well, you were very cool, so I'm happy to do it. I'm yeah, happy so to be part thank of it. you, thank you thank so you. much for talking to us. Uh, you know, you're you make stuff that we love, you know, and there's still some some things like the Sons of Perdition that I really want to watch. Uh, yeah. So thank you for like being cool enough to give us like, time of, uh, of your. I mean, you know, look, we sat around and talked about music and movies for an hour on a it, Sunday. That, that's what we did. That. Yeah, <laughs> argue with that. Um, I will plug my podcast, though. I yeah. do have a podcast called yeah. Was I in a Cult? 
Okay. That is uh, documentary style of people who were in cults. Uh, it, it interviews and tells the story of people who were in, realized they were in a cult and left the cult. But more than just telling that story, it tells it with comedy because cults can be horrible and horrific and awful. And they are, but they can also, in hindsight, be very, very funny. So, yeah, I'm going to put the link. I, I didn't know. I had no idea. So, I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll and, and, and it's very, you know, in documentary style, it is three act structure. It's not uh, just a chat show. It is very well edited with archival and music and sound effects. So cool. Yeah. Awesome. We'll be listening. Um, cool. Thanks for hanging out. Uh, just if you could just uh, email me the name and link to that podcast so I could attach sure. everything. Was I in a cult? Yeah. You bet. And uh, man, thanks for hanging with us. You bet, guys. Awesome. I had a great time. Thanks. Thank you. Post man. on anything, and then um, you know when the Bachman film is done, I'll send you a link. We're hoping to be finished. I don't know when soon. Fuck yeah! Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, yeah. for sure. Beautiful film. All right, gents. All right. Thank you, man. You bet. Thanks, guys. Bye.